Chapter Five, Section Three of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Five, Section Three, The Development of the Political Specialist. The corporations were able to secure and to exercise an excessive and corrupt influence on legislation because their aggrandizement coincided with a process of deterioration in our local political institutions. We have seen that the stress of economic competition had specialized the American businessman and made him almost exclusively preoccupied with the advancement of his own private interests, and one of the first results of this specialization was an alteration in his attitude towards the political welfare of his country. Not only did he no longer give as much time to politics as he formerly did, but as his business increased in size and scope, he found his own interests, by way of conflicting at many points with the laws of his country and its well-being. He did not take this conflict very seriously. He was still reflected in the mirror of his own mind, as a patriotic and a public-spirited citizen, but at the same time, his ambition was to conquer, and he did not scruple to sacrifice both the law and the public weal to his own prosperity. All unknowingly, he began to testify to a growing and a decisive division between the two primary interests of American life, between the interest of the individual businessman and the interest of the body politic, and he became a living refutation of the amiable theories of the Jacksonian Democrat that the two must substantially coincide. The businessman had become merely a businessman, and the conditions which had made him much less of a politician had also had its effect upon the men whose business was that of politics just as business had become specialized and organized so politics also became subject to specialization and organization the appearance of the captain of industry was almost coincident with the appearance of the boss there has been a disposition to treat the boss chiefly as the political creature of the corrupt corporation and it is undoubtedly true that one of the most important functions of the municipal and state bosses has been that of conducting negotiations with the corporations but to consider the specialized organization of our local politics as the direct result of specialized organization of American business is wholly to misunderstand its significance. The two processes are the parallel effects of the same conditions and ideas working in different fields. Business efficiency under the conditions prevailing in our political and economic fabric demanded the captain of industry. Political efficiency under our system of local government demanded the boss. The latter is an independent power, who has his own special reasons for existence. He put in an embryonic appearance long before the large corporations had obtained anything like their existing power in American politics, and he will survive in some form their reduction to political insignificance. He has been a genuine and, within limits, a useful product of the American democracy and it would be fatal either to undervalue or to misunderstand him. The American system of local self-government encouraged the creation of the political boss because it required such an enormous amount of political business. Someone was needed to transact this business, and the professional politician was developed to supply the need. There was no reason why such a need should have existed, because the amount of political business incident to state government should have been very much economized by a simpler method of organization. But American democratic ideas during the years when the state governments took form 
were wholly opposed to simplicity of organization. The state constitutions adopted during the period of Jacksonian supremacy seem designed to make local government costly in time and energy, and irresponsible in action, and they provided the legal scenery, in the midst of which the professional politician became the only effective hero. The state constitutions were all very much influenced by the federal instrument, but in the copies, many attempts were made to improve upon the model. The democracy had come to believe that the federal constitution tended to encourage independence and even special efficiency on the part of the federal officials, and it proposed to correct such an erroneous tendency in the more thoroughly democratic state governments. No attempt was, indeed, made to deprive the executive and the judicial officials of independence by making them the creatures of the legislative branch. For such a change, although conforming to earlier democratic ideas, would have looked in the direction of a concentration of responsibility. The far more insidious course was adopted of keeping the executive, the judicial, and the legislative branches of the government technically separate, while at the same time depriving all three of any genuine independence and efficiency. The term of the executive, for instance, was not allowed to exceed one or two years. The importance of his functions was diminished. His power of appointment was curtailed. Many of his most important executive assistants were elected by popular vote and made independent of him. In some few instances he was even deprived of a qualified veto upon legislation. But the legislature itself was not treated much better. Instead of deriving its power from a short constitution, which conferred upon it full legislative responsibilities and powers, the tendency has been to incorporate an enormous mass of special and detailed legislation in the fundamental law, so as to diminish indefinitely the power of the legislative branch, either to be useful or dangerous. Finally, state judges, instead of being appointed for life, were usually elected for limited terms, so that they could scarcely avoid being more amenable to public opinion. The tendency in every respect was to multiply elections and elective officials, divide responsibility and power, and destroy independence. The more democratic these constitutions became, the more clearly the democracy showed its disposition to distrust its own representatives, and to deprive them of any chance of being genuinely representative. The object of the Jacksonian Democrat in framing constitutions of this kind was to keep political power in the hands of the plain people, and to forestall the domination of administrative and legislative specialists. The effect was precisely the opposite. They afforded the political specialist a wonderful opportunity. The ordinary American could not pretend to give as much time to politics as the smooth operation of this complicated machine demanded, and little by little there emerged, in different parts of the country, a class of politicians who spent all their time in nominating and electing candidates to these numerous offices. The officials so elected, instead of being responsible to the people, were responsible to the men to whom they owed their offices, and their own individual official power was usually so small that they could not put what little independence they possessed to any good use. As a matter of fact, they used their official powers chiefly for the benefit of their creators. They appointed to office the men whom the bosses selected. They passed the measures which the machine demanded. In this way, the professional politician gradually obtained a stock of political goods wherewith to maintain and increase his power. Reinforced by the introduction of the spoils system, first into the state and then into the federal civil services, 
a process of local political organization began after 1830 to make rapid headway. Local leaders appeared in different parts of the country who, little by little, relieved the farmer and the businessman of the cares and preoccupations of government. In the beginning, the most efficient of these politicians were usually Jacksonian Democrats, and they ruled both in the name of the people and by virtue of a sturdy popular following. They gradually increased in power, until in the years succeeding the war, they became the dominant influence in local American politics, and had won the right to be called something which they would never have dared to call themselves, viz. a governing class. While the local boss nearly always belonged to the political party dominant in his neighborhood, so that he could, in ordinary elections, depend upon the regular party vote, still the real source of his power consisted in a band of personal retainers, and the means by which such groups were collected and held together contain a curious mixture of corruption and democracy. In the first place, the local leader had to be a good fellow, who lived in the midst of his followers and knew all about them. His influence was entirely dependent upon personal kindness, loyalty, and good comradeship. He was socially the playmate and the equal of his followers, and the relations among them were characterized by many admirable qualities. The group was, within limits, a genuine example of social democracy, and was founded on mutual understanding, goodwill, and assistance. The leader used his official and unofficial power to obtain jobs for his followers. He succored them when in need. He sometimes protected them against the invidious activity of the police or the prosecuting attorneys. He provided excursions and picnics for them in hot weather. He tied them to himself by a thousand bonds of interest and association. He organized them into a clan, who supported him blindly at elections in return for a deal of personal kindness and a multitude of small services. He became their genuine representative, whether official or not, because he represented their most vital interests and satisfied their most pressing and intimate needs. The general method of political organization indicated above was perfected in the two decades succeeding the Civil War. The American democracy was divided politically into a multitude of small groups, organized chiefly for the purpose of securing the local and individual interests of these groups and their leaders, and supported by local and personal feeling, political patronage, and petty graft. These groups were associated with both parties, and merely made the use of partisan ties and cries to secure the cooperation of more disinterested voters. The result was that so far as American political representation was merely local, it was generally corrupt, and it was always selfish. The leader's power depended absolutely on an appeal to the individual, neighborhood, and class interests of his followers. They were the people, he was the popular tribune. He could not retain his power for a month in case he failed to subordinate every larger interest to the flattery, cajolery, and nourishment of his local clan. Thus the local representative system was poisoned at its source. The alderman, the assemblyman, or the congressman, even if he were an honest man, represented little more than the political powers controlling his district, and to be disinterested in local politics was usually equivalent to being indifferent. Although these local clans were the basis of American political organization, they were not, of course, its ultimate fruit. In many of the cities, large and small, and in some of the states, the leaders of the local groups were subordinated to one of their number, who became the real boss, 
and who strengthened the district organizations by using for their benefit the municipal, state, and federal patronage. The relation of the municipal or state boss to the district leaders was similar to the relation which the district leader bore to his more important retainers. The boss first obtained his primacy by means of diplomatic skill or force of character, and his ability to retain it depended upon his ability to satisfy the demands of the district leaders for patronage, while at the same time leading the organization to victory in the local elections. His special duties as boss required personal prestige, strength of will, power of persuasive talking, good judgment of men, loyalty to his promises and his followers, and a complete lack of scruple. Unlike the district leader, however, the municipal boss has tended to become a secretive and somewhat lonely person who carried on his business behind closed doors, and on whom was visited the odium incurred by this whole system of political organization. The district leader either does not incur or is less affected by this odium because his social status is precisely that of his followers. The boss, on the other hand, by his wealth and public position, would naturally be an important member of the society in which he lives, whereas, as a matter of fact, he has come to be ostracized because of the source of his power and wealth. His leadership overreached the district clan, which was real social basis, and the consequence was that the boss became, to all appearances, a very unpopular man in the democracy which he ruled. His secretiveness and his unpopularity point to one of the most important functions of the municipal and state bosses, to which as yet only incidental reference has been made. The boss became the man who negotiated with the corporations, and through whom they obtained what they wanted. We have already seen that the large corporation, particularly those owning railroad and municipal franchises, have found that the purchase of a certain amount of political power was a necessary consequence of their dubious legal position. A traffic of this kind was not one, of course, to which many people could be admitted. It must be transmitted in secret, and by people who possessed full authority. An agreement to secure certain franchises, or certain needed legislation, in return for certain personal or party favors was not an agreement, which could be made between a board of directors and a group of district leaders. If a large number of people were familiar with the details of such negotiations, something more than a hint thereof would be sure to leak out, and unquestionably the fact that a traffic of this kind was part of the political game had much to do with the ability of the municipal or state boss to obtain and to keep his power. The profits not only enabled him to increase party funds and to line his own pockets, but it also furnished him with a useful and abundant source of patronage. He could get positions for the political henchmen of his district leaders, not only with the local and state governments, but with the corporations. Thus every boss, even those whose influence did not extend beyond an election district, was more or less completely identified with the corporations, who occupied within his bailiwick any important relation to the state. This alliance between the political machines and the big corporations, particularly those who operate railroads or control municipal franchises, was an alliance between two independent and coordinate powers in the kingdom of American practical affairs. The political boss did not create the industrial leader for his own good purposes. Neither did the industrial leader create the machine and its boss, although he has done much to confirm the latter's influence. Each of them saw an opportunity to turn to his own account the individualistic freedom of American politics and industry. 
each of them was enabled by the character of our political traditions to obtain an amount of power which the originators of those political ideas never anticipated and which if not illegal was entirely outside the law it so happened that the kind of power which each obtained was very useful to the other a corporation which derived its profits from public franchises or from a business transacted in many different states found the purchase of a local or state machine well within its means and well according to its interests the professional politicians who have embarked in politics as a business and who are making what they could out of it for themselves and their followers could not resist this unexpected and lucrative addition to their market but it must be remembered that the alliance was founded on interest rather than association on mutual agreement rather than on any effective subordination one to another a certain change in conditions might easily make their separate interests diverge and abstract all the profits from their traffic if anything happened for instance to make interstate railroad corporations less dependent on the state governments they would no longer need the expense of subsidizing the state machines there are signs at the present time that these interests are diverging and that such alliances will be less dangerous in the future than they have been in the past but even if the alliance is broken the peculiar unofficial organization of american industry and politics will persist and will constitute both in its consequences and its significance two of our most important national problems it would be as grave a mistake however absolutely to condemn this process of political organization as it would absolutely to condemn the process of industrial organization the huge corporation and the political machine were both created to satisfy a real and a permanent need the needs of specialized leadership and associated action in these two primary american activities that in both of these cases the actual method of organization has threatened vital public interests and even the very future of democracy has been due chiefly to the disregard by the official american political system of the necessity and the consequences of specialized leadership and associated action the political system was based on the assumption that the individualism it encouraged could be persuaded merely by the power of words to respect the public interest that public officials could be deprived of independence and authority for the real benefit of the plain people and that the plain people would ask nothing from the government but their legal rights these assumptions were all erroneous and when associated action and specialized leadership became necessary in local american politics the leaders and their machine took advantage of the defective official system to build up an unofficial system better suited to actual popular needs the people wanted the government to do something for them and the politicians made their living and served their country by satisfying the want to be sure the people they benefited were a small minority of the whole population whose interests were far from being the public interest but it was none the less natural that the people whoever they were should want the government to do more for them than to guarantee certain legal rights and it was inevitable that they should select leaders who would satisfy their positive if selfish needs the consequence has been however a separation of actual political power from official political responsibility the public officers are still technically responsible for the good government of the states even if as individuals they have not been granted the necessary authority effectively to perform their task but their actual power is even smaller than their official authority 
they are almost completely controlled by the machine which secures their election or appointment the leader or leaders of that machine are the rulers of the community even though they occupy no offices and cannot be held in any way publicly responsible here again as in the case of the multimillionaire we have an example of a dangerous inequality in the distribution of power and one which tends to maintain and perpetuate itself the professional politician is frequently beaten and is being vigorously fought but he himself understands how necessary he is under the existing local political organization and how difficult it will be to dislodge him beaten though he be again and again he constantly recovers his influence because he is performing a necessary political task and because he is genuinely representative of the needs of his followers organizations such as tammany in new york city are founded on a deeply rooted political tradition a group of popular ideas prejudices and interests and a species of genuine democratic association which are a guarantee of a long and tenacious life they will survive much of the reforming machinery which is being created for their extirpation end of chapter five section three